Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me today is author and president, Rick Lee, president of Rickling Institute for Strategic Leadership, Lauren Stiller Rickling, J.D. Her new book is The Shield of Silence, How Power Perpetuates a Culture of Harassment and Bullying in the Workplace. In early 2018, Lauren Stiller Rickling was asked by the Women's Bar Association of Massachusetts to develop a survey and report on negative workplace conduct in the legal profession in that state. As the responses came in, she was deeply struck by the extent to which respondents shared their very personal stories of sexual harassment, yet did nothing to address their circumstances. She compellingly argues that sexual harassment and other negative behaviors will not be stopped unless the condition that drives victims and bystanders into silence is eliminated. Uh, She's the author of more than 180 articles and has appeared on MSNBC, Fox Business, NPR, and in the New York Times, Boston Globe, Financial Times, Forbes Women, and many more. Welcome to the show, Lauren. Nice to have you here. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Well, this is a hot topic obviously. Uh, So let's just start. I I just want to address something that I said in the very beginning in this introduction. You say that sexual harassment and other negative behaviors, and I'm repeating, will not be stopped unless the condition that drives victims and bystanders into silence is eliminated. So what is that condition? What are we talking about? Well, we're talking about fear of retaliation, and that is always at the root of the equation when people either are the victim of misconduct or they are a bystander to misconduct and they are, are debating what to do. The question has to be when, you're, when you're, you feel your job might be at stake, what will happen to me if I report? And all too often, and this was in the Women's Bar Study result, the Women's Bar Association of Massachusetts study results and other research I've done for other books, all too often when things bad happen in the workplace, people say, I need to stay silent because I fear that I'll lose my job. Or if I don't lose my job, my standing in the workplace will will change significantly and I will no longer have the status, the assignments, whatever it is that made them successful will be gone. So right, it so, but is Lauren, fear. It, but given you just named two things, but those aren't those realistic. They're not just fears. They're not just, they are realistic fears that, and that does happen. Uh, aren't they? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yes. I, I didn't, by no means. I mean, in the book, I talk about it very, it's very realistic fears. Yes. Um, the, in the surveys, they are, the stories are dreadful about what, what has happened to people. So what I try to do in the book is talk about the fears, talk about the research that substantiates the fears, and then give a real blueprint, blueprint for workplaces for what they need to do to address this. But yes, the fears are all too real. I mean, right. they play let's out take in real life. Research. Let's because I think that's important. Let's let's go. Yeah, let's talk. Start from the beginning. Then, what are the research that you found that substantiates these the fears, women's fears in the workplace of losing their job if they say something about being sexually harassed or sure. So delayed. in. So, yeah. well, let's just use the Women's Bar Association study in Massachusetts as one example, and there are many, many data points with very similar um, examples, and that is 
um, people were asked a series of questions about either being the recipient of any kind of behavior, ranging from very uncomfortable um, jokes or remarks that were either sexual in nature or homophobic or xenophobic, whatever, um, you fill in the category, all the way to actual outright sexual um, harassment and assault. And in all of the examples where people answered affirmatively, we asked them for anecdotes and stories. And so often what you, um, what the responses said was, um, I, you know, the person who did it was very high up in the organization, um, and I knew my job would be at stake. But beyond that, even, there were times when they would actually go to someone in human resources, somebody um, in a position of authority, and they would then be told, we can't do anything about that person. He's too important to the organization. That's just who he is. You just have to live with it. Um, or excuses would be made for the person. So you see what you see develop in the workplace are not only um, the um, actual retaliation that occur, but a culture of protection that works to protect uh, um, perpetrators. And that's why I call it the shield of silence. It's really a protective shield that, that forms around the actual perpetrator who, because no one dares say anything and because the institution actually acts to protect him um, in many ways, then the behavior just is perpetuated. So that's one aspect of the research. And then there's the academic research of, you know, many of the studies looking at this interplay between power and negative behaviors. And what becomes very clear is most of the time, these behaviors are not rooted in sex so much as gender discrimination or, or um, issues around retaining status in the workplace. So it's a very nuanced and complicated um, uh, dynamic that's taking place, but the bottom line is it all goes to the question of what kind of culture are we developing in this workplace or what kind of culture are we letting um, continue in this workplace. Are there any workplaces, as you've given that example, I, it seems to me that I would say that, that uh, most workplaces are like this. I mean, this is just what happens in our culture in America. Did, did any of them stand out or were there any other uh, workplaces where, hey, this sort of culture of protection didn't exist or? <clears throat> yes, I, there is, I definitely heard very um, heartening examples of where um, the 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 organization worked as it should in a particular instance. So so for example, um, one of one of my theories is I mean I've always been outspoken in my career and in my workplaces um, and believe um, that people. There's an, for, from the victim's perspective or from the person who's had the problem, there needs to be kind of a more constructive analysis about how, whether that fear is in fact realized because I, I have heard many examples of where the person at the highest level is in fact a very good and decent person who does not know what is going on because people don't like to bring things to the attention of someone in a CEO or high-level position. And, and so then what happens when, when that happens is that everyone in the workplace just assumes the leader knows without ever confirming it. And I did hear many examples in which, uh, and I've had conversations with women, with women about this, in which when they did in fact 
approach the person who they really did believe was, for, for good reason, was a very decent leader in that organization and talk to that person. The right thing was done. So I don't have any hopelessness about this issue at all. I, I do believe um, people need, employees need strategies and employers need much better policies and clarity around the culture they're trying to build and create of respect and inclusion in their workplace. But, um, but I do feel we just all have to be more proactive about seeking out allies and trying to, um, trying to again, eliminate the silence that, that protects the behaviors. Well, you just mentioned, Lauren, the word strategies, which I think is important. Like, perhaps in some of these institutions, things have been going on as usual, and there are no mm-hmm. strategies. There are no really laws or, or rules, or maybe not laws necessarily, but rules that pertain to the kind of behavior that is, is expected, in each, and very specifically, not generally, in some of these institutions. Um, did you find that is part of the well, issue? Yeah. Well, it's it, your, your, your word, when you use the word laws, I thought uh, that's really important to emphasize because one of the biggest problems we have is that the law only allegedly protects, I mean, it doesn't, it, it more often doesn't than does, but the law speaks to the most egregious behaviors. But then there's that whole range of other behaviors that can make your life really uncomfortable and unpleasant and not, you know, keeps you from being an engaged in, uh, an engaged employee, a lack of morale in the workplace. So there's a lot of behavior that can make people miserable that the law does not, in fact, cover. So that's one of the things I talk about in the book is, you know, here's what the law does, and it's pretty narrow, and it, and it, it with respect to protecting victims, it doesn't really work that well. So it, it does throw the responsibility in many ways until we have better laws, it throws the responsibility back on the workplace uh, to, to, to try to put into place strong policies and guidance um, and process that can guide victims through a circumstance. You know, what, how do you report? Whom do you report to? Are there multiple mechanisms for reporting? Are you protected when you report? Is someone watching to make sure there's no retaliation? And in fact, is someone watching to make sure that there's no retaliation six or eight months or a year from now once the matter has been resolved and perhaps a disciplinary action has been taken? So it's a very comprehensive set of actions that are needed um, that go far beyond the law but really would make such a big difference for improving workplace quality. Let's talk about some of those uncomfortable situations, because I think that's key also. Yes, we know mm-hmm. the ones that are out. It's much easier to address the ones Absolutely. that are just outright yes. sexual harassment. <laughs> but it's those gray areas that really get us into trouble or re- I think in trouble in terms of as a victim not wanting to react and as the employer not wanting to react because you're not really sure. So. Talk to us about some of those specific examples and how they have been or should be handled. Absolutely. I think the, um, so, so one thing about that is con- open up dialogue. 
in every workplace, let's figure out a way to start having conversations about what makes people uncomfortable and what is appropriate and not appropriate. Because one of the, one of the really critical issues is let's deal with those gray areas because it is those gray areas that can, can, can make you so uncomfortable. So one gray area for, that came up all the time um, in, the, in the Women's Bar study as well as other studies is um, a lot of very awkward and uncomfortable behavior arises out of social events at work at which alcohol is served. Um, and, you know, uh, drinking can be ubiquitous in the workplace when, you know, whether it's the holidays or birthdays or going out for a special dinner to celebrate something that happened at work. And that can really trigger negative behavior, even in people who might otherwise be very decent to, to work with. So that's a conversation that can be had and an issue that can be easily addressed. You don't have to have free-flowing alcohol at every event. You can have restrictions on how much um, that people have. You can have alcohol-free events. I mean, that's just that's just an area in which so many problems arise, and there is a clear path to a solution. Um, there are other examples, uh, you know, the, the where people might be, you know, the sort of Joe Biden thing, right, where somebody may just be a particularly type of personality or overly handsome whatever it is, and what has to happen there is reframing the conversation to understand it doesn't matter how the person who's doing the behavior feels, it's how the recipient feels. And And I want to stick to that Joe Biden example because that was a question I had for you. I think there's also perhaps, and I'll address this, but a generational thing. I mean, I've been speaking to women of, say, more Joe Biden's generation. And that kind of behavior, you know, putting your hands on a woman's shoulder with no intention of sexual harassment was much more uh, accepted in that say, over 70 generation, as opposed to, say, a Gen X or a millennial, and who men and women don't subscribe, perhaps, to that kind or accept that kind of behavior. Isn't That comes into play, too, I think. I think to some extent, but again, I, I, I do think that's true, and I, know, I, I really do hear the very similar kinds of statements from uh, baby boomer colleagues, but interestingly, I've had many conversations with younger women who talk about how important touch is to them when they're grieving or when, they're, when something is upsetting them. I mean, that's a lot of where his behavior arises from, um, that sort of, you know, that, that you know, incredible empathy that I think comes from so much of his losses. I mean, we could spend a lot of time sort of analyzing him and his behaviors, and but I do think it is an example of where um, for younger women, perhaps, who are less used to that behavior, and keep in mind, for baby boomers, you know, Joe Biden kind of behavior was probably, you know, far more welcome than what they had to endure, you know, on a, on a, con- a much more constant and overt basis um, in, in many ways. But I think for younger women, um, the, the question that I get all the time is, how do I let people know where my boundaries are? You know, I, I, you know, if you're younger women, you may be perfectly, you know, any of us may be perfectly comfortable hugging people hello. Um, but on the other hand, some aren't. And those, I think, we, it, they're uncomfortable and they're delicate, but they're, 
they are part of communicating who we are and how we, how we need to get along in the workplace. But one thing I think we have to be really super cautious over in this conversation is to not allow it to be turned into a Me Too backlash, you know, where we hear now conversations about, um, well, I can't mentor women anymore because I'll get accused of something that I, that I didn't do. Or, um, I mean, and I know many women um, who have had conversations conversations with um, um, senior men in their workplaces who say, well, I'm just not going to, you know, in, ever be in a room with a woman and close a door, and I'm never going to invite somebody to uh, an important dinner if, um, uh, you know, just all these I'm never going to do things. Um, and I think that we have to be very vigilant about calling that out as essentially a decoy, that it is, you know, the people of goodwill and good intention, generally speaking, are not getting accused of inappropriate behavior. And we can't let that conversation about very difficult and hard issues around consent and appropriate behaviors be dragged into a um, just another way to discriminate against women in the workplace. So what you're saying is, and I think going back a little bit, a few sentences back, a responsibility of the victim to set their own boundaries, appropriate boundaries. But it's also before you become a victim or even define yourself as a victim, what are your boundaries? And that should be something that is discussed, as you say, in the workplace. But before things escalate, that's one thing. But then the second thing, doesn't there have to also be a pattern of behavior, you know, just because somebody may be inappropriate or for you or for the person, the woman touched you on the shoulder and you don't want that. And if you, that's just, you just don't want necessarily anyone touching you. Uh, then it, and it's, but it was a one, you know, it happened one time and I'm talking, you know, but if that continues, if this is pattern of somebody always, sort of approaching you in a way that you don't want or overstepping the boundaries, does isn't that a different scenario? I don't know if that's clear. So, yeah. No, I, I definitely get what you're saying because in the book I talk about, I have a section really talking about the importance of understanding patterns of behavior because if we're silent and we never report, then how do we ever determine patterns? So that's one other reason why um, having a place where information is collected is so critical. Um, having a trusted ombudsperson, perhaps, or a trusted leader in an organization or several people across an organization that people can go to on a confidential basis and, ha- and be able to talk through a situation, I think, is one way to start to develop patterns because because if, um, you know, if, if person A is going to someone and saying, you know, this made me uncomfortable, can we, can we talk about what I should do? And that happens, okay, and they work it through. And then a week later, person B has that same conversation with the, the, that individual about the person who is the same person that person A was complaining about. And, and it keeps happening. You're developing patterns that suggest that some type of, of follow-up and disciplinary approach really is, is needed. So I think you're absolutely right. Focusing on patterns of behavior is very important, but you have to provide people the mechanism to be able to do that. 
And don't you think it's very difficult to, uh, we need to obviously be doing exactly what you're saying, but we are still in the overall context of a patriarchal society. I mean, and so it's sort of this, it's, it's, it's a whole new world, sort of a whole new world order. And yes, you don't want to be pitting people against one another or the boss not inviting you to a a top level meeting or luncheon because they're serving alcohol and you're a woman and he doesn't want to get into that kind of stuff with a woman. That's really not a good thing for women uh, to advance their careers, but it's really, talk about this in terms of we've never had a female president. I mean, we are a patriarchal society and we're sort of, I think, trying to emerge from that. So put the, put your, yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I I talk um, a a lot in the book about the research around how so much of this is is rooted in gender discrimination, Um, which is why the rules can't be that, well, we won't have alcoholic co-ed events, right? I mean, if you're putting into place rules, the rules have to apply to everybody and make sense to everybody. It can't be that, well, I can have my, you know, at at this event, I just won't invite a woman. I mean, that would be disastrous. So whatever we're doing... And and that's why one of the things that I root this conversation in is how do you create a culture of respect and inclusion overall? We have to start talking. I think if we can change our language to focus on how do we respect one another and demonstrate respect in the workplace, we can back away from um, these individual kind of examples in which somebody is, you know, good and somebody is evil or, or you know, nothing can get done. But by focusing on respect, you, you get to change the conversation. So, for example, if I can, um, bystanders. We don't talk enough about the impact on bystanders to either har- harassment or inappropriate behavior or whatever in the workplace. But um, what the research tells us is it's really a problem for people who are witnessing but feel powerless to help. They feel like they're not doing right by their work colleague. They have the same fears that their work colleague has about speaking up and what will happen to them if they do. And they suffer the same kind of disengagement and poor morale. So for from the CEO or head of an organization's perspective, we're really not talking about the occasional situation that in their mind where somebody may feel victimized. We're talking about a workplace culture where everybody perhaps is feeling this overwhelming sense of disrespect and disengagement because no one is paying attention to what the culture is like in, in this workplace. What were maybe what workplaces have you found in the research that perhaps have the worst cultures of non-inclusion and non-respecting or non not respecting uh, women in their workplace culture? Are there any industries that you can point to? So it's about the. Great question. I did look at that, and what I found is that when you do research on particular walks, you know, particular industries, particular areas, uh, or specialties, you, you you find it everywhere. So I I in the book, you know, as I'm going through how the pervasiveness of the problem, um, there are studies in the STEM, you know, the, the science, technology, you know, engineering and math fields, in the medical field, uh, obviously in Hollywood, obviously in, in the media, because it was been so much about that uh, publicly, um, in the legal profession, in business, I, there is no one who, no organization, no entity, in the nonprofit sector, 
So the interesting aspect of this is workplace misconduct is prevalent. And and so the and and expensive. I mean, I also talk about the cost to the um, organization that we don't think about when you start. You know, from retention and um, recruitment, bring having people leaving or being demoralized or not working the way they can or should um, because of all these other things going on. So you know, it is everywhere, and no no one leader of a workplace should be able to say we're fine without actually doing the internal study or investigation or due diligence to know if in fact that's true. Well, I guess that's, that sort of gets back to one of our uh, points that we had made earlier that it is per- pervasive because it's pervasive in our culture. It's a, it's a, mm-hmm. this, this culture of I, I keep saying patriarch. I don't. I can't think of another word. But that's exactly what it is. So, uh, so in in other words, it affects every institution, for profit, non profit, et cetera. All right, let's get into some of the specifics because we only have about we only have a few minutes left. So, specifically, what can we do? You know, somebody who's listening and thinking about, wow, this stuff happens in my workplace, but I haven't said anything. I'm the bystander because you said that's a that's an issue. That's a problem. Well, what does the bystander actually do? So, you know, I focus on what it is that the workplace needs to do. What I, I think from the employee, you know, from the bystander slash victim perspective, you know, it's about trying to find allies, trying to, to, um, develop a network of affinity group, whatever they can do to support one another and try to promote, systemic change, but the reality is you can't have cultural systemic change unless you have an engaged employer, unless you have an engaged leadership. When you can engage your leadership, when you can say these are the issues that we're seeing and this is why it is costing you money and and it's ineffective (laughs) for the workplace and you can engage them in thinking, then there are so many things that can be done. And I, um, I write a lot about issues around types of training, ranging, of course, from, you know, training as to that allows people to have these conversations about the, the, you know, the gray areas as well as the black and white areas, bystander training to help bystanders learn how they can speak up in a safe and effective way, um, doing an internal assessment, have, having somebody independent come in and look candidly at the workplace and and talk confidentially to people to find out what is really going on. That is critically important. Creating the right reporting systems, creating the right systems to prevent retaliation, um, having greater transparency in the process. I mean, there are so many things that an engaged leader can do to make a difference. So it's it's important that the onus not be fully on, on on the employees. And I think that since we have a couple minutes left, one of the things we can do, obviously, is get your book because there's a lot more in the book than what we talked about today, The Shield of Silence. And also give us a website that we can uh, go online. You can buy it, the book online, bookstores everywhere. But uh, you're president of the Rick Lean Institute for Strategic Leadership. So where can we get more information about the work you're doing there? Thank you so much. Yes, I do training and speaking and consulting and a lot of workplace culture issues. And it's the Rick Clean Institute. It's RickCleanInstitute.com. My last name R I K L E E N 
in the word institute, all one word, so recleaninstitute.com um, is my website, and at Lauren Reclean is Twitter, you know, at L-A-U-R-E-N-R-I-K-L-E-E-N. And, um, uh, yeah, I invite anybody to come, and I post a lot of my articles and work on online, and my books are, of course, available through Amazon and bookstores. And, um, you know, these, these topics are so important, and I, I invite everybody into this conversation and, and, ha- and in trying to open up these conversations in their workplaces. They're difficult, but they're critical. Critical, and it's been a great conversation today. Thank you so much for being on the show. Oh, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Mm-hmm. 